0: The reading for the day comes from Acts 9, 1 through 18, and 26 through 28. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, women or men, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up, Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. go for he is an instrument whom i have chosen to bring my name before gentiles and kings and before the people of israel i myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name so ananias went and entered the house he laid his hands on saul and said brother saul The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, and described for them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everybody. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. We are uh, in our Lenten practice right now. That's the season that precedes Easter. That all over the world, many people in the Christian tradition are setting aside a season, a time of preparation, as we pay special attention to the journey of Jesus toward Jerusalem, as we prepare our hearts for a celebration of Holy Week, of confronting the cross, and of the resurrection of Easter. And I know that many of you have some practice that you have incorporated, whether you are giving something up for Lent, so to speak, a type of fast, or you've incorporated a new kind of practice, feel free to throw that in comments, by the way, if you have found a practice that's been life-giving to you. I know a lot of people struggle to figure out how exactly to spend these 40 days. Um, and uh, honestly, I have two this year. I historically do food-related fasts um, where I will restrict my diet in a very specific way um, and usually do a water fast during Holy Week. But this year, fasting, especially, um, you know, not eating any solid food (laughs) is um, not safe for me because I'm pregnant. And so I had kind of experimented with um, incorporating different perspectives on meditation, different prayers, and nothing really landed for me. So I had to kind of... um, adjust and fine-tune my Lent practice this year. And uh, a couple weeks into Lent, um, Cameron and I discovered and created a new practice that we will be continuing all the way through to Easter. Every day, we read um, an essay in a book called We Do This Till We Free Us by Miriam Kaba. And it is uh, a practice we have together where we read one of these essays. Um, They're super short, four to eight pages, and then we talk about it. And we picked this book um, because we really resonated with where God is calling us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, in our practice of justice. And this book, We Do This Till We Free Us, um, the subtitle is Abolitionist Organizing and Transformative, I'm sorry, Transforming Justice. This is a book of essays um, mostly by Miriam Kaba, who is a, an activist, a writer, a thinker, a black woman um, engaged in the struggle um, historically in Chicago and New York City. Uh, And she has also incorporated a lot of other brilliant people and their writings on the subject. And the reason that we are committed to this is because this past year has really caused Cameron and I to confront our beliefs about the prison industrial complex. We had kind of talked in passing about how we were both abolitionists. Sure, like, we are abolitionists, which means that we believe that um, prisons and police forces should be abolished. But it's actually really hard to live that out consistently, especially when the criminal legal system is one of the only recourses we have in our community for um, intervention on uh, periods of injustice. So for instance, when uh, a a person is harmed, when a, a black man, for instance, is murdered in the streets in Minneapolis, we want to call for the incarceration, the punishment, the imprisonment of the person who did that to him. And yet, our abolitionist framework kind of challenges that. Can we actually imagine a different way? Because the prison system as it it exists, in fact, what most abolitionists characterize as the prison industrial complex, the PIC, actually isn't serving us. So this is an examination from a a radical left, Uh, perspective on how we confront the injustice in our world when the systems that promise us justice not only do not deliver but in fact criminalize the most vulnerable people and ultimately cause even more irreparable harm especially among black and brown people. So the prison-industrial complex is really pervasive in our culture. And it's not just prisons or police, although those are the most visible, most aggressively violent forces of it. It's actually broader than any of that. It's a culture of punishment, a culture of control and coercion. It's based upon the disposability of human life, especially black and brown people. And the logic of it is that if you do anything wrong or deemed to be wrong by this system, the the appropriate recourse is not rehabilitation as is sometimes pretended, but punishment. And punishment specifically through isolation. Punishment by removal from our society and our culture. Now Cameron and I have been in this in this work in this fight long enough to know that that is not serving us i was in prison long enough to know that that was not serving anybody and we feel really trapped sometimes because as christians we are called to believe in redemption to believe that all can be made whole to believe that there is no sin no fault no flaw beyond god's ability to redeem and transform and yet We experience harm at such a deep personal and systemic level that we long for justice. And the only justice our world has imagined is this carceral system, is this punitive system of pain and retribution. And so being an abolitionist is really hard because the question always comes up, well, what do you do instead? What do you do with people who harm you? Maryam Kaba is our teacher this season, this Lenten season, as we journey towards the cross and we see the way that that system of retribution, that system of pain and punishment, that system of public humiliation played out on Jesus' brown body at the hands of the police state of the Roman Empire. Our belief in Jesus and our call into Jerusalem and into the story of Holy Week our call through the death of the cross and into the resurrection of Jesus is a call to imagine systems beyond those mechanisms of death, destruction, and punishment to envision what new life could be like. But as I am starting to realize, Jesus, the resurrection, abolition, the kingdom, is unrecognizable to those of us still caught up in this carceral prison state. This, I believe, is why the disciples couldn't actually recognize Jesus after he's resurrected from the death and the cross, because even though Jesus was more himself than ever, even though he bore the wounds of that battle with the systems of death, the new transformed Jesus was so hard For us to understand this new vision of kingdom and abolition and what is to come is so beyond our imagination as to be unrecognizable until we have journeyed with Jesus through death and into new life. So as I said, Maryam Kaba is our teacher this season. And she's helping us to understand what abolition is. She provides this helpful definition. PIC abolition is a positive project that focuses in part on building a society where it is possible to address harm without relying on structural forms of oppression or the violent systems that increase it. A world without harm isn't possible and isn't what an abolitionist vision purports to achieve. Rather abolitionist politics and practice contend that disposing of people by locking them away in jails and prisons does nothing significant to prevent, reduce, or transform harm in the aggregate. It rarely, if ever, encourages people to take accountability for their actions. Instead, our adversarial court system discourages people from ever acknowledging, let alone taking responsibility for, the harm they have caused. And I think that this is really profound, because when we talk about needing to dismantle these structures of evil, these structures of punishment and harm, and disposability of human life, the first question is always, well, what do we put in its place? And actually, I think that this is a diversion. It's a very tempting one, because we want to be a people with a plan. We want to have the structures and systems in place. We want to say, this one's broken, but I got you a better one. But the call of the kingdom and the call to the life lived in the way of Jesus is to imagine beyond what we have capacity to envision at this moment. It is to learn the path while walking it. It is to say these structures of harm, are not the way. And we will find that way by dismantling and divesting ourselves from those systems of harm and evil. And we begin there. We spoke uh, in, in a previous sermon about prefigurative politics. This is the idea that we cannot wait until everything is ready to be transformed, that we have a vision that we call into being at all moments and we, we live that to the best of our ability. We experiment. We work with one another. We create new systems and new cultures. And so, if I believe that the God of life, that the God of forgiveness, that the God of redemption is calling us into a new way of being, then I have to apply that as much as possible here and now, even as I fight to dismantle those systems of cruelty and destruction. If I believe that God is an abolitionist, then I have to trust that God will unfold the paths that we walk as we walk them. But I also have to realize how much has been internalized into my own heart. All the ways that the logic of the prison industrial complex has, has maneuvered in me its own perspective so that I advocate for it even as I fight against it so that even my instincts are towards punishment and retribution in the way that the prison industrial complex has taught me is the only form of justice. And I have to root that out in my spirit. And that is an act of discipleship. That is the call to redemption, the call to the hope that redemption is possible for me and for all people, which as we know in this community we've talked about, it's really hard to hold hope for the redemption of all people, especially while they are causing harm. And yet, challenging that logic is an act of faithful discipleship to Jesus Christ who says, hey, even as you are harming, I have faith in your redemption. So grow your heart and grow your imagination and follow me on the way Maryam Kaba names this as a difficulty, that we've internalized so much of the structures of the prison industrial complex and of its logic that if those structures were to just evaporate tomorrow, whatever we built in its place would probably replicate those same logics and harms. That we actually have to do the work of dismantling systems of destruction in order to grow our imagination into creating new and different systems. And I believe her because I've seen these tendencies in my own self, these knee-jerk reactions where I want punishment when someone has harmed someone vulnerable. And in fact, all of those same logics that harm deserves punishment and retribution that we use the threat of of harm and punishment to control people's actions, that we can, with power, coerce people into behaving in certain ways, and that if they don't behave in those ways, and if they cause any kind of harm, that their lives are disposable. All of those logics have actually worked their way into our movement spaces in the form of cancel culture. So cancel culture was originally a critique of the left from the left, but it was recently co-opted by the right, basically to say that any accountability was cancel culture. But before they stole it and ran off with it and started whining about it, there was a legitimate discussion, especially from abolitionists, saying, hey, we have a problem, y'all, because we are starting to incorporate the logic of punishment, of retribution, of control by threat, of exile, and of human disposability in our reactions to one another's harm. And I got I to tell you, this is a, a terrifying sermon to preach because we all want to get this right. and. It's a terrifying sermon to preach because we've learned the consequences of making mistakes and getting things wrong, especially in public. But this is exactly what's at stake when some of these activists say, is this the world we want to build for ourselves? Forget the folks who are whining about any accountability, who just want things to stay the same. Let's have an internal conversation. Is this how we want to be held accountable? Is the idea of cancel culture what we are really trying to prefigure in imagining a new world? Or are we recapitulating the harmful logics of punishment and disposability? On this incredibly important matter, I have turned to a lot of these abolitionist teachers, um, and in particular to a teacher who I really admire named Adrian Marie Brown. I've mentioned Adrienne Marie Brown in sermons before. She's a queer black woman and scholar, thinker, activist. She wrote a great book called Pleasure Activism. But today, I want to share with you another thing she wrote called We Will Not Cancel Us. As you can maybe see here, it is a very small book. And it is really an expansion of an article that she wrote, uh, an essay she wrote in in the summer of 2020 called Unthinkable Thoughts, Call Out Culture in the Age of COVID-19. And Adrienne Marie Brown has given a lot of this a lot of thought. She too is a public abolitionist, trying to break down the systems that create the disposability of black and brown people and throw people away, criminalize people, turn single incidents of clash and conflict with the systems of power into a lifelong sentence of disposability and exile. And over the summer of 2020, Adrienne Marie Brown started to write about how concerned she was that these same logics were infiltrating our movement spaces. I resonated a lot with what she said in this essay, including Something that she says about life, she says, I think everyone chooses each day to move toward life or away from it. And I thought, yeah, zhao. That's what zhao means to me, to be among the living. That's what discipleship means to me, to choose the ways of life against the ways and mechanisms of death. But she talks about how capitalism can make it very difficult to discern which direction you're moving in, toward life or toward death. She longs to move towards systems of life, and that is why she is an abolitionist. Now, I just wanted to kind of sit here and read you this whole thing because it's so good. Um and because she's so brilliant. And so I really do recommend that you check out this book or at least check out that essay. But if I could do my best to summarize some of my learning, she talks about the context of COVID, the context of being confined and afraid. She talks about the exhaustion of the pandemic combined with the exhaustion of American history and a life lived under oppression. She writes about experiencing hopelessness and shame and trauma collectively, that this is baked into our history in this country, and that while we fight those things, hopelessness, shame, trauma, we have also internalized them as people born into a nation of abuse. She writes about our justifiable rage and our feelings of being out of control. And she says, one immediate release for all of this rage is the knee-jerk collective punishment in movements. She talks about call-outs and how they are important, a consequence for those in power causing harm. But she also talks about how we've become misaligned towards immediate and sometimes gleeful shame and humiliation when we call people out for their harm or abuse or mistakes. I'd like to share with you a quote from We Will Not Cancel Us. She writes, I'm speaking about what we do when we hear of harm, abuse, or conflict. We as community members, friends, family, partners, coworkers, comrades, people engaged in our own cycles of harm and healing. As movements trying to break cycles of harm and abuse, how do we hold survivors and those who cause harm as community members once they speak up? Currently, a wide variety of harm harm doing gets collapsed into one label of bad disposable person or organization and receives one punishment, a call out, often for some form of instant cancellation. I resonated with this and I think that it's true that we have built a culture of retribution, of punishment, even among people who are advocating that we defy the logics of punishment in our prison system, we have built a culture of cruelty and punishment to one another in the face of any harm. And the harm there is real. I don't wanna downplay that. I think this is happening because we feel like it is our only recourse. Adrian Marie Brown writes that, Instant judgments and punishments are practices of power over others. And it's what those with power do to those who can't stop them. Those of us who experience oppression, those of us who who witness the oppression of our loved ones, those of us in the struggle, who are usually on the, the harsh end of that retribution, even though we want to deny it, even though we want to dismantle it. We get something out of that sense of power when we can be the ones punishing, when we can be the ones wielding power, when no one can stop us from doling out the retribution that is deserved in our eyes for the harm that has been caused. And it forms like a frenzy in us. The most stirring image that she writes of in this essay is that of a feeding frenzy. She talks about how predators, when they are overwhelmed with a swarm of prey, will start to bite and lash out indiscriminately, mostly catching prey, but sometimes even starting to bite one another in their their pleasure and fury to devour what has come before them. This is Adrian Marie Brown's assessment of our movement spaces. That there is a gleeful move towards power that we have been abused by. And in so doing, yeah, we'll, we'll catch some perpetrators. But ultimately, we're causing one another to bleed. We are ravenous for justice. But just like Maryam Kava warned, We are recreating the logic and violence of the very spaces that we are supposed to be fighting against. We are called to create the way as we walk it. We are called to create the kingdom here and now. We are called to redemption. And I will concede that the systems of power are are committing violence on a fundamentally different scale. This is not to create a false sense of equiz- equivalence. And no one is dying from losing their job or their Twitter following. But the logic is still there. And we will see those consequences bear out the more power we are able to amass if we continue to replicate this. And before all of that, Adrian Marie Brown actually argues that because we are a relational interconnected species that one of the most violent punishments you can give a human being is to cut them off from community. And that is the threat hanging over the heads of everyone exposed to cancel culture. She also goes on to say that we can't end the systemic patterns of harm by isolating and picking off individuals. And this is the fantasy, this is the fantasy given to us by the prison industrial complex and by the nightly news that says, ooh, there are bad people out there. They're not you, they're other than you. These systems, as we know, feed on on imagery of white supremacy and otherness, but they say there is an enemy, that enemy is not you, we will catch them, we will punish them, and then you will be safe. We will pick off those individuals But it's a distraction. It's a distraction from cultures of violence. It's a distraction from all of the systemic reasons that people perpetrate harm. And we know that when we can step back. But that fantasy that we can just isolate the bad individuals, bad apples, anyone? That's a fantasy fed to us over and over and over again. And we know that it's wrong. We call it out as wrong. No, this is a systemic issue. And yet we are tempted again. We are tempted again in our own culture when we say, you've done something wrong, we'll get rid of the problem, it's you, you're canceled. I see a lot of connections to parts of conservative Christianity that really embrace individual sin and salvation. That say that casting out individuals that make a problem will make the problem disappear. That problems or sins or dysfunctions can be exiled as individuals from a community. And that sin is never collective, never systemic, never moving through us as a body, but is always one person's personal moral failure. This is a sin of the church, and it is is a sin we need to heal and confront. And so that brings us to the question. How do we deal with conflict and harm? How do we deal with conflict and harm in a way that prioritizes the most vulnerable? We must do that by managing this systemically. Adrienne Marie Brown says that ending cycles of harm for black and brown people necessitates ending those cycles of harm for all people. And that we've got to think bigger than exiling and disposing of any one person here and there, as though that will do away with the harm that is surrounding us all. As we mentioned above, the the institutions of death, the criminal legal system actually discourages people from ever acknowledging, let alone taking responsibility for the harm they have caused. This is something written in Kaba's essay. There is no hope for repair in the system we have, but if there is no hope for repair, then there is no way to deal with and transform harm. And at a spiritual level, this system has no hope for redemption, and if there is no hope for redemption, then there is no way to heal from sin. What we are longing for that that ravenous thirst for justice that requires accountability. And one of the reasons that we are so tempted to buy into these logics of retribution, so tempted to say that that the perpetrator is an other that we can excise from the community is because we have no other systems for accountability. And we know that accountability is crucial. Our culture knows two strategies for responding to harm by and large. One is punitive retribution. This is the prison industrial complex, exile. I would say that this even captures the Christian theologies of hell. If you harm and you know, don't do good enough, you are exiled forever, punished forever, paying for your sins till the end of time. The other logic has a very forgive-and-forget air to it. It's sort of conflict-avoidant. It's about ignoring harm and power imbalance and denying that harm is really there. And I see this in a lot of Christian calls for unity that say, basically, can't we all just get along? Which is really a cry for, can't we just please stop talking about this harm? But we actually do have more than that. We have more, th- more tools in our tool belt. We have more vision to cast given to us as the good news in the gospel. Our faith has always called us to do more, to do better than that. And it is our human systems of retribution or denial that have caused us to, to shrink the vision of the gospel into something more imaginable to us. But to envision a kingdom way that does not deny or repress the truth of harm, but also defies the logic of violence and retribution, to envision a new way is to follow Jesus on the way. I like to call that part of the vision redemption. But a lot of Lutherans I know call it grace And so I'd like to introduce you to a third teacher, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran theologian who lived in Germany um, in the 20th century and was writing and, and teaching and thinking during the rise of the Nazis in his country. So the stakes were pretty high. And Bonhoeffer wasn't trying to let anybody off the hook. And he was trying to find a way into freedom. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship in 1937. And his work that brought him into conflict with those systems of death did eventually kill him. But in 1937, he was reflecting on what I call redemption, what he calls grace. And he contrasted what he called cheap grace from what he called costly grace. He defined cheap grace in that sort of forgive and forget kind of way. Grace without discipleship, he said. This is the idea of forgiveness without any personal transformation or reparation of harm. One of his examples is communion without confession, which I understand to mean a welcome place at the communion table or in the community, without a raw, honest look at the ways that we have all caused harm and a willingness to ask forgiveness of one another and God and to transform ourselves to repair harm. He talks about cheap grace, saying that the cheap version is Grace alone does everything, and so everything can remain as it was before. This is about letting people off the hook without any kind of accountability. Cheap grace to Bonhoeffer is hearing the gospel, saying, oh, of course you're a sinner, we are all sinners, you are forgiven, so stay exactly as you are, keep harming the community, do what you gotta do, and enjoy the fact that you are forgiven and you can sleep easy at night. And he says that the main problem with this interpretation is that there is no demand for discipleship, no demand for transformation, and no accountability for harm. But he talks about what he interprets to be the way towards redemption. I'll share this teaching of his with you. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field, For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ, at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Now, if you can move through the gendered, antiquated language, you can see the difference between cheap grace and costly. That we have here a few different visions. On the one hand, we have the prison industrial complex, which uh, with its logics of uh, destruction and retribution, And on the other hand, we have this cheap grace that says, All is forgiven. Nothing needs to be changed. There is no accountability. And yet, there is another way the way of Jesus Christ. Costly grace, costly redemption that says, You can be redeemed. You are called to be redeemed. And it may be painful. It will be difficult. And you know what? It's ongoing, it is never done. It will cost you your life but it will also give you the only true life there is in the ways of Jesus Christ and the kingdom. Costly grace, Bonhoeffer says, confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. And when I read that, all I could think of was the phrase, come to Jesus moment. That we all gotta have a come to Jesus moment over and over and over again, that a call out, or perhaps better, a call in, is a come to Jesus. Is a, is a throw yourself down, is a beg for forgiveness, not from an angry, punitive God, and not from an uncaring God who doesn't mind harm without accountability, but from a God of community who says, yes, I see your harm, and yes, it hurts. And you need to know that. We all need to know that. And the next step is for you with all of us in community with the whole of creation to transform yourself in the love and image of the God who provides the way. Redemption in the kingdom. We have a beautiful example of this in the scriptures. And this is where we began today with the story of the conversion of Paul. Paul, known then as Saul, because sometimes we do need a new name when we find our new life. He was imprisoning people. He was on the side of the prison industrial complex. He was colluding with those systems of death and destruction and persecuting Christians. He cheered on the crowd that was stoning Stephen to death. He was a tool of the state, enacting those same values of threatening and killing and controlling, coercing with violence, treating people as disposable. And yet, as he was on the road to Damascus, Paul has his come-to-Jesus moment. God calls Paul out. And Paul miraculously hears God, believes, wants to be transformed. And then what happens The unimaginable in our current culture, Paul crawls back to the community that he was persecuting, imprisoning, and cheering on as they were murdered. And he says, I have come to Jesus, and now I'm one of you. And there was justifiable rage, and there were questions, do we believe him? And yet that culture of redemption, that community of Jesus, took him in and helped him as he reoriented his whole life, as he helped in a fundamental way to build the church as we know it, as he too, once he was aligned with God's people, became persecuted, as he died imprisoned, and tradition holds as he was beheaded by Rome. This is a story of redemption. This is a story only possible in a culture where we believe that the Saul's of the world can become Paul's. Where we believe that come to Jesus actually means something. Where we believe that each one of our own sins, failures, harms, and mistakes can be healed by the love of God, by the love of community, and by the personal work that we are called to put in, that costly grace of discipleship. How do we build this culture? How can we build this culture? Now, even with that example of Paul, our gears start grinding because we're like, well, if I could excise Paul from the Bible, maybe I would. Because ca- Paul has caused a lot of problems for a lot of us. And I don't want to deny that. That, in fact, is actually one of the, of the foundational elements here. That a come-to-Jesus moment is not first and then final. It is not like we are transformed the end. We are transformed over and over and over again in the path of discipleship, in the path to the kingdom. Because God doesn't work with perfect people. And that is something that the scriptures have made abundantly clear. When we look to the history of our God and our people. When we look to the history of the kingdom, we see that God chooses to build the kingdom, chooses to form solidarity, chooses to bring vision of the new way of life into the world through deeply flawed, harmful people. It's recorded right there in the book. Noah's story includes him basically acting like a drunk, naked frat boy. My namesake was stubborn and whiny. Peter was a reckless fool. Mary Magdalene was possessed by seven demons. And some of it is considerably worse. Moses was a murderer. David was a rapist. These are not things that were eliminated from the book so that we could sanitize it and say, well, the only people building God's kingdom are people who have never had to come crawling to their community and beg forgiveness. We don't, as a body, as a belief, as a faith, as a community, we don't pretend that God builds through perfect people. Nor do we say that those things are fine. We call for accountability. We call for complications. God doesn't cover up people's harms or failures. And neither does she exclude them from contributing to the movement. We build with the people we have and the people we are. Redemption requires ongoing transformation. And it is difficult. It is painfully self-reflective. It is about acknowledging that we screwed up. We are currently screwing up and we will screw up again. And yet, these are the tools, these are the people that God has called to build the kingdom. And we are called to account, to come to Jesus over and over and over again. And every time we do, we are offered new life. And the transformed life that we have individually and collectively through facing our failures and harms through asking forgiveness of God and of one another, through repairing harm to ourselves and our community and our world, through being continuously welcomed into a different world that we create together. This is redemption. This is costly grace. This is salvation. This is the hope of resurrection in the face of death. This is the Christian call to a fully redeemed world. We can imagine more, y'all, yeah. and we will learn the way by walking it. But the call to discipleship, the call to redemption, is a rejection of those mechanisms of punishment and death. As we experiment with new ways of being, and as we come to Jesus over and over again. So how can you be an agent for change in the world, building a culture of redemption? How can you call for accountability in a way that repairs harm rather than exiles people? This may be as simple as encouraging people's effort when they do try to come to Jesus. Having grace, not the cheap kind, we don't need any of that, but the costly kind. And having one another's backs when we, str- when we stumble and when we are called in to the kingdom of God. Will you pray with me? God of grace, God of redemption, we believe a new world is possible. Teach us the way as we move through it. Teach us as we travel. Take away from us those logics of violence and retribution and give us hope for a different, more Christ-centered way. Amen.